You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Well, that felt like the Holy Spirit answering a prayer at the end, didn't it? I'm not saying that we, you know, didn't click up the air conditioning right at the right moment, but I'm going to say that the Lord answered and said that He'll speak. So, uh, one, I want to just say a quick thing. If you guys were here last week, I announced that we were about to have a teenager in our house and that I was walking into that with fear and trepidation. Uh, I want to affirm something for you guys. We've had a teenager now for two days. House is still standing. So praise be to God for that. Yeah, absolutely. And to my wife, thank you for saving us. Uh, underneath of the grace of Jesus. So with that, again, we are continuing on, guys, in our sermon series through doctrine and emotion. This sermon series is meant for us to connect doctrine, the truth of who God is and what he says is right and good, and the emotions and experiences that we walk through. That these two things are not at odds, but in fact, in the midst of the Psalms, what we have is the Lord showing us what it looks like to walk as His people through these experiences. Experiences of joy, experiences of sorrow, experiences of confidence in Him, experiences of fear and trepidation, and experiences of faith as we walked through that last week. Today, we are walking through a new experience, quite honestly, one that none of us like to walk through. Several years ago, as I was uh, the uh, executive pastor of the church that sent us down here to plant Mercy's Door, I was having a conversation with our lead pastor, and he was recalling for me an ongoing conversation that he was having uh, over social media with an old friend of his. It was a friend that he had gone to college with, and they had recently reconnected. This friend had found out that he was now a pastor, Uh, and was kind of surprised, quite honestly, by that, knowing him in undergrad. And they began having this conversation about the Lord and faith and the nature of what is true in life. And so this, this individual was not a believer, and so they kind of started this back and forth conversation. And, uh, the lead pastor that I was underneath of and serving underneath of, uh, he tried everything in his toolbox to present the truth of who God was and to convince him by God's grace that he would come to know who the Lord was. And so they talked about creation and and how a world like this could be created out of nothing if not for someone as powerful as the Lord, but it just didn't seem to resonate. And so they talked about the complexity of this world and how this world could be so intimate and, and complex and how it reflected the care of one who was far wiser than us, and it just didn't seem to resonate. And they talked about the nature of good and evil. They talked about the presence of things that we call inalienable rights or human rights or natural rights and how good could exist if not for someone who had declared it to be good and it just didn't resonate. And so towards the end of this long back and forth conversation, our lead pastor finally just said to him, If none of that resonates, let me just ask you this. If you don't believe that there is a God, if you don't believe that there is hope of salvation, what do you do with your guilt? And he asked that question and he put it out there and he just waited for a response and he didn't hear from this other individual for several days. And finally he heard back and this individual told him, I've been haunted by your question. This man was successful by almost every definition of the world's definition. He was well learned. He was well spoken. He was successful in his vocational career. He had what looked to be a successful and healthy family from the outside, but all of that he knew had come with a wake a wake that he left behind him of fails decisions, of failed relationships, of bad choices even before he got to what seemed to be 
good choices, and he couldn't shake the question, and he knew in his heart that he didn't know how to deal with his guilt. See, guilt is it's a universal human condition. It doesn't matter, quite honestly, whether you sit here and you would identify as a Christ follower, or, or if you can't comprehend the presence of a good and holy God. The truth is that all of us deal with guilt. Now, most of the definitions that exist out there, if you go to Webster's or Oxford's dictionary and look up the definition of guilt, what you'll see is they'll talk about a feeling of guilt. A feeling that is, it comes with perceived wrongdoing or perceived failures. But the biblical definition of guilt goes deeper. The biblical definition of guilt is that there is a break in a relationship or an indebtedness that occurs because of something that we have done. The biblical definition of guilt says that the feeling of guilt is produced not just because we've conjured it up, not because there's a chemical dissonance in our brain, but because something has actually happened. Guilt is produced because there is a lacking, there's an indebtedness, there's a brokenness where once there was whole. And so the question becomes, what do we do with that guilt? My guess is if I asked you or if you asked a neighbor, have you ever felt guilty, unanimously they'll say yes. Because people know that they're not perfect. Even our culture will admit reluctantly that perfection is something that we've not attained. And so what do we do when we've failed? What do we do when we've hurt others? What do we do when we failed ourselves? That's the question of what do we do with our guilt. And it's the question that we're asking today as we walk through Psalm 51. David shows us that guilt is something that we walk through. Again, if you were here the last couple of weeks, I said that there are two main purposes or two guardrails to our feelings and experiences. And they are, one, that they help us to experience the world around us, and two, they point us They draw us, they even drive us towards the Lord. That goes for joy. Joy helps us to experience the goodness of the world around us. And joy is meant to draw us and drive us to the one who gives all good gifts. Fear helps us to experience the broken aspects of the world around us. Fear helps us to experience our own lacking apart from the Lord, and fear drives us, draws us to the only one who can comfort us in the midst of it. Guilt does the exact same thing. We'll see as we walk through this that guilt helps us to understand and experience the truth of our world and the world around us. And it also is meant to drive us, draw us to the goodness of our God. The path through guilt, it begins with a plea and it ends in assurance. Psalm 51, the psalm of David, created me a clean heart. It begins like this. The title is, To the Choir Master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. David begins like this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. If I gave you this phrase, maybe you can answer it for me. The first step in solving a problem is what? Admitting that there is one. Some of you don't even want to admit that the first step in solving a problem is admitting that you have a problem. You're two steps removed. 
Right? The first step in solving a problem is admitting that there is one. And the same goes for our guilt. You can't deal with guilt until you admit that guilt exists. And Psalm 51 begins with this beautiful title, To the Choir Master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he, David, had gone into Bathsheba. This psalm, like several of the psalms, gives us a specific context for the author of this psalm. We know it's David and we know that he's writing it after Nathan the prophet has gone to him. Right? If you were to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 11-12, to you'll read the story of David and Bathsheba. David, the great king of Israel, at the height of his reign, we're told in the springtime when kings go out with their army to war, David is not out with his army where he ought to be leading his men into battle. Instead, he's at home, enjoying the perks of being the king. And in the midst of him enjoying these perks of being the king, he one day sees a woman and desires to have her. And so he sends his servant and he brings this woman to her and he takes her as his own. Now the problem, of course, is this, this woman belonged to another man. And not just another man, but a friend of David, Uriah the Hittite, one of David's mighty men. One of the men that were out in the battlefield at that time serving for King David. David eventually finds out that Bathsheba, this woman that he's taken as his own, has become pregnant. And David has to figure out a way to deal with it. He tries many ways to cover up his sin, but when it becomes clear that Uriah is eventually going to find out what David has done, he orders his general and his army in the midst of the fight to draw back from Uriah to ensure that Uriah is killed. And that's exactly what happens. Time goes on. Bathsheba is pregnant. And then one day, Nathan, a prophet of God, comes to David. And this is what he says in 2 Samuel 12. Nathan begins to tell a story to David. He said, there were two men in a certain city. The one was rich and the other poor. The rich men had many flocks and herds, but the poor men had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought for his family. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him in his house with his children. It used to eat his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was almost like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the city and to the rich man, but the rich man was unwilling to take one from his herd or his flock. So he went and he took the poor man's lamb. And he prepared it for the man who had come. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against this rich man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done such a thing deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then Nathan looked at David and said, you are the man. This title that the psalm gives us, it gives us more than just context for information. It helps us enter into the psalm. It communicates and helps us to see a couple of things clearly, even as we begin this path in guilt. And the first is this, the specificity of this psalm, it sets a really broad stage. Right? There are times when we come to the Word of God or we see the sins of other people and they testify to the Lord's forgiveness and it's really easy for us to say, yes, but if you knew the depths of my sin, it wouldn't apply here. Now listen, I always hesitate to say something like this lest one of you raise your hand and I realize that we have a lot of counseling to go through, but I don't believe any of you have walked through something quite like David. And that doesn't let you off the hook. Actually, what this does in David being honest about what he's confessing here. Right? We don't know that the nation of Israel heard this story. 
But David, in the midst of Psalm 51, and entitling this specific to his scenario, outs himself to the world and says, this is the guilt that I suffered that I needed to trans, to, to, to actually go through, to travel through. And the invitation for us is, this covers a multitude of our sins. Or maybe to put it another way, this path of guilt is even for your darkest moments. For all sin, all guilt, this path that David shows to us is sufficient. And then the second thing that I love just in this title is how prominent Nathan's name is. David was the king of kings in Israel, and it could have been that in the moment that Nathan outed David, he could have simply said, off with him, to death with him. But instead, the Lord uses Nathan and his words to convict David. And Nathan is not written of as an enemy to the king in the psalm. He's written of as a really good friend. And so as we enter into this discussion of guilt, this place where we want to cover up and hide, let me just start by asking you the question, do you have people in your life that will speak to you the way that Nathan has spoke to David? That will press in far enough to say there is sin here. There is guilt here. There are things in your life that will lead you away from the presence of God and towards death. Stop. Come back. Repent. Turn around. Because what you're going to find is that David actually receives a really good gift from Nathan. David's plea to the Lord begins, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. David's plea begins with this word for mercy. That which he does not deserve. A kindness that he is unworthy of is the definition of that word mercy. But he requests mercy based on God's steadfast love. That word steadfast love we've seen several times in the Psalms. You'll see it all throughout the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew word hesed. It's a covenantal love. It means love that is given not based off of simply emotion or affection, but it's love that is given by someone who commits to them, who says that the binding of our relationship is the basis of this love I will pour out. And God has established steadfast, unshakable love with His people. So do you, do you see the dichotomy of the request here? David says to the Lord, give me that which I am unworthy of, but that which I expect because of your steadfast love. One commentator said, it's the juxtaposition you hear in the prodigal son when he comes back and says, Father, I am no longer worthy to be your son. Even as he confesses with his mouth, I'm no longer worthy to be your son, what does he call him? He calls him father. Because father is not something you earn. It's something that you are given. And we are given steadfast love and it allows us, even as sinners, to know that we are cherished by God. It gives us a footing to ask and even expect what we are utterly unworthy of, which is God's abundant mercy and grace. David goes on as he asks for mercy and requests that his transgressions be blotted out, that he would be utterly washed from his iniquity and cleansed from his sin. If you read passages in the Old Testament that kind of talk about the holistic nature of sin, you're going to see these three words. These are the prominent words used in the Old Testament for sin. David says, 
my transgressions, my iniquity, and my sin. What he's asking is that the Lord would do away with his transgression, his rebellion against God. The way that he has committed spiritual adultery and forsaken God and walked the other way. For his iniquity, literally the way that he has perverted, the way that he has twisted or bent God's good design and God's good commands. And that God would do away with his sin the way that he has failed to hit the mark, failed to measure up to the standard of God. What David is saying is, I need comprehensive healing. All of it. I need you to forgive me and cleanse me from the way that I have rebelled and forsaken you. I need you to clean me, cleanse me, and forgive me for the way that I have twisted your design and your commands. I need you to cleanse me and heal me from the way that I have failed to live up to the standard that you have, O God. David begins with this appeal, and then he moves on to what is oftentimes the worst part for us in this path through guilt, which is seeing how bad it really is. David says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin did my mother conceive me. You delight in truth in the inward being and you teach wisdom in the secret heart. In my former career, in Homeland Security, we, we, we put on a, a number of workshops for cities all around the country. And as we put on these workshops to help them prepare, if God forbid they ever actually had to respond to a terrorist incident, one of the things that we would do towards the end of it is we'd bring in speakers that had survived terrorist incidents, shootings at uh, Virginia Tech or um, bombings in Boston and other places. And I remember distinctly one of the speakers one time was describing his own trauma as he walked through uh, one of these incidents. And uh, he had suffered severe burns on his body as a result of this incident. And he recalled how he sat in the hospital for days and how routinely doctors would come in and for a period of time they would begin to debride the, the burns that he had. They would begin to remove the debris that was in the wounds, to cleanse him, to peel away the skin that was utterly gone and dead. And the point of doing this incredibly painful and tedious procedure was to prepare his body for healing. That if they would have moved towards healing, if they would have moved towards putting on skin grafts before these burns and wounds were utterly cleansed and healed, debrided and peeled away, utterly exposed, that true and full healing couldn't have taken place. The same is true for us as we walk through our guilt what we typically want to do, it's what Adam and Eve did the moment that they experienced guilt. The first thing we want to do is cover up. We don't want to look at it. We don't want to look at the wound. We don't want to cleanse it. We just want to put something over it and hope that it goes away as quickly as possible. But the path through guilt... It begins with us looking deeply at the totality of what it is. Because the worst thing in the world, and listen, I, I deal with this in my own heart all the time. I deal with this as I walk through life with you guys. Is that we get through the end of a, a process of confession and repentance and dealing with guilt. And all we've done is we've dealt with the surface level. Right? Rachel and I have, have, have made this a habit in our own marriage when we confess to each other. At the end of confessing to each other, we'll give each other an invitation. We'll say to each other, is there anything else? Because now that you've gotten this up, I don't want you walking away still holding something inside. David does this. He says to the Lord, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. 
Again, I, I hope you're starting to connect some dots. This word know comes up again and again in the Psalms. And we've said it's not a knowledge that is informational. It's not abstract. It's not intellectual. It's not distant. This is a knowledge that is intimate. The same word is used again and again when a man knows a woman. When a husband consummates marriage with his bride. That's the same word to know. And David says, I know my sin that way. I know it deeply. I know it intimately. I've stared it in the face. It is sat before me even when I don't want it to be. It is ever before me. But the other thing that strikes me is David says, I know my sin. So when Adam and Eve were face to face with the serpent, being tempted to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the serpent said to the woman, on the day that you eat of that tree, you will know good and you will know evil. And David is walking through the consequences of that now. He is knowing his own evil. He is knowing and seeing clearly his sin. And then he goes on to a confession that I think for most of us, if you've heard this psalm before, if this is the first time, is hard for us to reconcile. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Right, most of us hear that and we go, David, uh, hey buddy, I think Uriah would have something to say about that. Like you've sinned against more than just the Lord, but David isn't lessening his sin here. He's actually deepening it. Because what he's saying is, I refuse to simply address the consequences of my sin. I refuse to simply address the outworking of my sin. Instead, I'm going to unearth the depths of it. Several months ago, my, my dad came over to help Rachel and I. We, we, we moved into a new house about a year ago, and there were these massive shrubs on the outside of our uh, patio. And so he had rented like a little uh, uh, skid steer to do some work at his house. And so we're like, hey, bring it over, and, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll just pull these bushes out. Piece of cake. Right? And it had rained like a day or two before, but we were like, oh, it should be good. The, the grass is pretty dry. And we connected a chain to the skid steer and then to the first shrub. And, and he hit reverse. And I'm thinking, all right, this is going to be easy to just pop out. And the tracks just started spinning and spinning and spinning. And then finally the bush started to inch and inch and inch. And it felt like he drove in reverse for half a mile before I saw the end of the roots they had made their way utterly underneath of the entirety of our concrete patio. But we had to get all of it out. And it was going to be hard work to get all of it out. And David is saying when he says to the Lord, against you I have sinned, what he's saying is I'm going to get all of the roots of this guilt. And the root of sin against those made in the image of God is rebellion and sin against God Himself who has made us. Who has told us what is good and how we are to love and care for one another. David says, God, I'm not going to simply say I've sinned against man because sin against man is only an outworking of the real root which is sin against you. Second, David goes on and he says to the Lord, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. David's not saying that his mother did something sinful when she conceived him. What David is saying is that sin is not something he does. Sin is something that he is apart from the Lord. Like church, I need you to hear this. I remember early on in Planting Mercy's Door, we, we had preached a sermon on Genesis chapter 3 and talked about how from this cataclysmic moment, everything was saturated, soaked in sin. All of us. 
And I remember talking to someone and they said to me, if that's your definition of sin, then I don't just sin every once in a while, but if I am soaked in sin, then I'm like always sinning. And my response was, apart from the grace of God, yes. We live it out. The air that we breathe apart from faith is in rebellion to God. Now here's why this is a hard confession. Because right? David, or you, or I, I can fix my words. I can speak a little kinder. I can speak a little gentler. I can fix my actions. But I can't fix my nature. I don't have the ability to do that. And so when David confesses that sin is not something that he has done, but it's something that he was born into, it's his very nature as fallen mankind, he leaves himself with only one hope. And that hope he gets to next. Let me pause for a second, because I don't... This is the place I don't want to move past. There, there is a, a second psalm that, that is a companion psalm to Psalm 51, and that's Psalm 32. David, in that psalm, he, he writes this, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand, O Lord, was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David was saying to the Lord, this sin and guilt that was within me, it was like poison that was festering inside of me. It was like death that was spreading in my body from the inside out. This is what guilt is. It has to come out. If it doesn't come out, it will poison you. The Apostle John uses a different phrase, but like it, he says that we must step out of the dark and into the light. And, and, and that means for the really big things, like some of you are here. And if I asked you right now to think of the moment in your life you are most ashamed of, the moment in your life that you most regret. For some of you guys here, it will take you not even a millisecond to have an image flash before your mind that you would do anything to do away with. Some of you carry that guilt in this place. And my response to you is get it up. Get it out because it serves to do nothing but poison you from the inside out. And others of you, maybe that doesn't come to mind so quick. Maybe instead for you, what you need to hear this morning is that every little moment where you trust in yourself rather than the Lord, every little moment where you just don't quite measure up to what you hoped you would be, Every little argument, every little disagreement, every little failure that you have is another opportunity not to have building up in you resentment or a track record or a history, but it's an opportunity in every little moment as well to get it up and out. To say, therefore, there is no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. Guilt is something we look at in its face, we get up and we get out, and then finally we grasp a hold of our only hope. Look at where David goes next. Purge me with hyssop, I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, O Lord. Blot out all of my iniquities. David's confession of the depths of his sin now turns to repentance. He's laid bare before himself and the Lord the depths of his sin. He sees rightly his rebellion, and now he turns back 
And rather than looking at his sin, he looks at the Lord. Like, I I need you to hear this, church. If you are constantly staring at your sin, you are not moving into repentance. Because repentance at some point in time requires you to stop looking at your sin and to start looking at the Lord. To turn to him and to see his response to you. David says to the Lord, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Hyssop was a a, a tree, a branch, a, a, a plant that was common throughout the Middle East. And it was used routinely in the sacrifices and ceremonies of the priesthood for the people of God. And so if, if there was a man that had leprosy, even a spot of it, what was prescribed for him is that he would go to the priests. The priests would take hyssop, a hyssop branch, and after sacrificing an animal, he would dip it in the blood of the animal and he would sprinkle it on the man with leprosy. Or, or if someone was ritually unclean because they came in contact with a, a dead body, for instance, they would go to the priest as one who was unclean and they would become clean as the hyssop branch was dipped in the blood and sprinkled upon them. And at the end of these ceremonies, the priest would declare, and he shall be clean. And now David is taking those words upon himself and saying to the Lord, more than simply a cleansing by the earthly priests around me, God, would you Would you cleanse me? Would you make me clean? And then David's request, it moves on. He says, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. David's request, it's not half-hearted in his measures. But he wants to be utterly clean before the Lord. He wants to be utterly forgiven before the Lord. And then he moves on with boldness. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Literally, let the bones that you have broken dance. One commentator, I loved this, said, if your confession and repentance doesn't lead to worship and dancing, then you haven't done it correctly. Like how many of us, as we go before the Lord in the midst of our sin, in the depths of our brokenness, in the fullness of our guilt, expect as we walk before the face of the Lord to get to the place of worship and dancing. That the request is so big that we make of the Lord, that He would so utterly remove our guilt, so utterly wash us of our transgressions, so utterly forgive us of our rebellion, that we would stand before Him and our desire would no longer be to grovel at His feet, but instead to dance in His presence. It it made me think of uh, last November when we had COVID running through our house. And, and for me, it was like a week and a half of like an unending fever is what I had. And so I was on the couch just utterly useless to the world around me and, and especially to my wife for a week and a half. And, and on the Wednesday after the Saturday that I had really started getting symptoms, a week and a half in, I woke up and the fever had broken and I started to feel a little bit better. And I sat there for a few hours and then I finally got up and I got in the shower and I like wore real pants for the first time in a week and a half, right? Like, like, I mean, jeans, right? Like, let's not get crazy. It wasn't slacks or anything, but pants that weren't sweatpants for the first time. And I put on a clean shirt and like combed my hair and looked semi non-homeless. And I just remember the feeling of like, oh, okay, this feels good. Like I've lived in this utter place of just like illness and sickness and now I feel refreshed. And David is saying, like you come out of it on the other side. Like church, have you you come out of it on the other side of your guilt? 
Like, have, have you stood on the other side and said, that's not me anymore? I don't live in this place anymore that there really is joy and celebration? Now, as we look at this, we have to ask a question of David. Because this is a crazy request by David. He's murdered a man. He's committed adultery. And for all David knows and the people of God knows right now is that at best there are temporary sacrifices that can make him temporarily clean. Right, the Lord, when he describes to his people and Moses his name, he says this, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions. Yes and amen. This is the God that David needs. But then he goes on. He says, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. David at best was hoping for a day when one day the sin that was rightfully to be visited on him would be taken care of forever. At best, at this point in time, David could only hope that his punishment and his sin, his guilt would be delayed. And we're told that one day Jesus comes. Romans 3 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but they are justified by God's gift of grace through redemption in Christ Jesus. Why did Christ Jesus come? Because God put Him forward as a propitiation, a satisfaction, that by His blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. Jesus came so that David could say to the Lord, Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Jesus and His sacrifice moves us through guilt to utter forgiveness. And then there's the rest of this psalm. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. You see where repentance moves? David doesn't just want to be forgiven. He wants to be restored. He wants to be reconciled. He wants a heart that no longer strays from God but pushes him stirs him, draws him, forces him constantly towards the Lord. And then this path of guilt reaches its climax. Then, David says, I will teach transgressors your way. Sinners will return. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. My mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David's own path through guilt turns into worship. This is actually meant to be normative for all of us. Jesus, before he was betrayed, as he's face to face with Peter, he tells Peter, Satan has demanded to have you, to sift you, but I prayed for you. And then do you know what Jesus tells Peter after he tells him he's going to deny him three times? He says, but when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. After you've walked through your sin, after you felt the weight of guilt, after you've seen the depths of your depravity, after you have brought it before me and you have tasted and seen of my goodness and grace, of the expansive nature of my love, of the sufficiency of the work of Christ Jesus on your behalf, 
what is left for us to do? To strengthen our brothers by leading them into worship of the God that we have so intimately experienced. Right? What better place is there? What better person is equipped to lead us in worship than one who has desperately needed God and seen His grace and His kindness face to face? This is why David says, you will not delight in sacrifice or I will give it. The sacrifices of God, no, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. What he says is, God, you don't desire the sacrifice. You desire the longing and the love and the worship that brings us to sacrifice. Why does someone bring a sacrifice to the priest? Because they see that they are needy and because they long to be reconciled to the Lord. David says, that's what you want at the end of this for us to see that we are needy and long to be with you. David concludes, do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem that you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Most commentators say that these last two lines were actually added decades, centuries after David. That perhaps these were written after the nation of Israel, after they returned out of exile, after the capital of Jerusalem had been destroyed, after they had seen the fruits of their sin and rebellion against God, after they had returned, after they had read this psalm, they added these lines so that this might be an entire song of the people of God. No one wants to write this psalm. Like No one wants to have to live through a place where we say, I know the depths of my sin. They are ever before me. I am broken and needy. I have iniquity and transgression and sin that clings to me. I remember early on in our marriage, after I had to come to Rachel and confess sin that was hard for her to hear, it was hard for me to say. I remember saying to her, I don't want to do this again. And she said, why? And it wasn't in that moment because I didn't want to sin against her. It was because I don't want to be the type of guy that has to do this. I don't want to be the type of person that has to confess to sins like this. And it's easy for us to look at David in the psalm and this path through guilt and say, I don't want to be the type of person that has to do this. But What we see in these last two verses is that David's confession, his plea to the Lord, his confidence in God's grace and mercy, his movement towards the Lord and his celebration of the Lord's mercy actually rolls over and becomes a song of salvation to an entire nation of people. That a whole people sing the praises of God as they too confess of their guilt and cling to the grace and mercy of God. Church, this is for us. We want to be a people of repentance. We want to be a people that when we see our guilt, we run to the Lord again and again and again. We want to be a people that trust in His steadfast love, His mercy and His grace. And we want to be a people who access the gifts of Christ over and over again. And so let me end here, because here's the deal as I prayed about this sermon. Some of you may have heard something in this path through guilt that is new for you. Maybe if you've never heard of the work of Christ Jesus and the surpassing glory of his life and death and resurrection, perhaps this is new for you. But I know for a lot of you guys, very little of what I said is shocking. Maybe you tuned out halfway through the sermon. I'm not that engaging. And maybe you thought, yeah, I get it. I get it. We confess. We repent. We hear God's grace and mercy. Maybe most of you guys have heard the path through guilt. But my question is how many times we walk it. How quick are we to run back and to walk it again and again and again? 
How many of you guys right now are sitting in places where you go, I don't know, I've done it before, I should be over this. I don't want to do it again. It feels like too long of a path. I came upon this quote in a a book called Gentle and Lowly this past week. It's from a Puritan a long time ago named Thomas Goodwin. And I just want you to leave with these words from your Savior as we contemplate whether or not we're going to keep walking this path through our guilt. Walking this path from sin into rejoicing and worship. Thomas Goodwin says this, Christ's own joy, the joy of our Savior, the joy of God in human flesh, Christ's own joy, His comfort, His happiness, and His glory are increased and enlarged by His showing grace and mercy in pardoning, relieving, and comforting His members here on earth. Christ's joy is increased as He shows you grace and mercy. His glory is increased as He applies to you relieving comfort. He goes on to say, the glory and happiness of Christ are ever increased still as the members of His body come to have the purchase of His death applied more and more and more to His life. Some of you guys are hoping, like me, that we just won't have to be the type of person that walks this path again. And may the Lord give us clean hearts that love Him and trust Him. But Christ doesn't shake His head when we walk the path of guilt. Instead, His glory and joy, His comfort and happiness are increased as we access the purchased grace and mercy that He has for us. As we come again and he, we say, wash us clean. And he says, and you shall be clean. Pray with me, church.